0: What a start for Brad Hughes 180 metres to go Looking good Oh, what a shot What a shot from Brad Hughes Oh my goodness, what a finish for Bradley Hughes 18 under 5, joins the lead An amazing victory for the second time Brad Hughes wins the Australian Masters
1: This time by five strokes.
0: Welcome to the latest episode of Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast. This is episode 13, which I am told is my next guest, Lucky Number. He was pretty proud to be that numbered episode when we talked about it. Rich Bain will be remembered for winning the PGA Championship in 2002, and in the process, handed Tiger Woods his first runner-up finish in a major championship. We discuss how our paths crossed in his rookie season on tour in 1999, and everything that came before and after. Now a respected commentator for the Sky Sports team, Beamer is a master storyteller. So sit back and enjoy episode 13 with Rich Beam. Welcome to Bradley Hughes Podcast. This week, I've got the world famous PGA champion of 2002, Mr. Rich Beam. We are sitting... Together down at the Players Championship in Ponavedra Beach, getting ready for this week's tournament. But we thought we'd catch up first and reminisce. Bima, thanks for coming, mate.
1: Are you kidding me? Thanks for having me. This is a this is a treat. <laughs> this is a treat. I haven't seen you in hell. I don't know how many years I haven't seen you. You know, I've been following you with uh, you know everything you've been doing as a teacher. But we saw each other what either earlier this year or late last year. U.S. Open.
0: US Open, yeah.
1: US Open last year. You sent me one of those down underboards.
0: And the tour championship.
1: And the tour championship. Yeah, yeah. I mean I, every week is just it's like Groundhog Day.
0: It's gotta be a blur for you. It is
1: a blur, I gotta say. But it's great to see you again because I see your I see your name all the time in my house.
0: That's right. <laughs> you just uh, Beeman just air dropped me a picture from the nineteen ninety nine Kemper Open. His first victory on tour, and I was going to ask him the question, "Who came second to him?" But it's right there every day at his house.
1: <laughs> I do. And uh, Bill Glasson was he also? But funny enough, after we won, Steve Duplantis, who was my cat at the time, he actually said, "You know, I'm so happy for for Bradley because he finished second and he secured his tour card for next season." So there you go.
0: Well, that's a great starting point. That was your. Rookie year on tour? Yeah, rookie year. And got a win out of it. But leading up to that, I guess it wasn't as remarkable as that. Sort of really found some magic that way. Tell us about the progression from getting your card, because obviously it's difficult turning pro. Or, you know, you've know you been pro for a little while, but getting a PGA card and then ultimately getting a win like that halfway through
1: the year. My, you know, how I got on the PGA tour uh, is... is... So strange. I mean, it's, it's truly crazy how I went from working in the pro shop at El Paso Country Club, making about $13,000 a year um, starting in 1996 and then end of 1998 getting my tour card and then my eighth tour start winning. Um, but what I found, though, is that in 1998, before I got my tour card, I was winning everything in the Sun Country section. And I think it won seven times that year. Three of them were considered majors at the time. And once you learn how to win on any level, it doesn't disappear. It's not like at least for me anyways. I think that what I learned and how I learned to win on what I was what I would consider the best of the best, I think that just carried over the PJ tour. And it's not that it was lost on me that I was playing against the best players in the world versus the best players in southern New Mexico and Texas. <laughs> but, you know, you can only beat who's there in front of you. That's and
0: right. so
1: you can't, you know, you, you can't say, well, you know, I wasn't that good because I didn't beat so-and-so. But, listen, I can only beat who was in front of me. And and so I just think that I learned a lot about winning. Um back in 1998, and that just kind of carried through through my career um, from 1999, 2002, which was, you know, my last win.
0: That It was a good progression. I mean, we played together on the third day. I don't know if we were leading, but we were probably coming first or second, or at least in the, one of the final groups Saturday. And you, you held it together good. I struggled a little bit on the Saturday. But we, um, there was the story, because, you know, Thursday, Friday in those days, was not covered too much. They had a little bit of airtime here and there and a few groups, few players, but come Saturday it was the big league and you and myself were the, the featured group basically and there was a lot of talk about your past. Obviously the selling car radios and selling cell phones and it was kind of a, a rags to riches story that they held on to and really sure. pushed through the through the airwaves that weekend. So is that it? Like, was that before golf or was that when golf had come and then you didn't do so well and so you went pushed back to
1: something else? So that would have been back in 19, I want to say end of 95 through part of 96. I graduated college in, uh, let's see, what was it? The Spring of, I think it was spring of 94. Is that a blur? You can't remember? You know, funny enough, I'm 50. I mean, I forget stuff all the time. I'm sorry, but I, I think I grad. No, spring of '93. No, fall of '93 is when I graduated. Took my first job in spring of '94. That's what it was. Um, but to go on to go play on the PGA tour was nowhere near on my list. I wanted to play one tournament alone, and that was the Phoenix Open because I'd gone there as a As a kid uh, in college, and I just wanted to play there one time. After seeing the 16th, I'm like, I got to play this. This is going to be the greatest event of all time. And I just, I never had any ambition to play on the PGA Tour. I can't say that. It would always been a dream job, but I didn't think that there'd be any chance. So I went up, took a job up in Sioux Falls, South Dakota for a couple of seasons, Um, met. Met a gal, chased her out to Seattle, Washington. Uh, didn't work out, and then I decided to uh, to leave and go back to New Mexico. And that's when I got a job in El Paso in 1996. But you know, I I had literally no idea what I was doing. I, I till still today I have no earthly idea what I'm going to do when I grow up. But um, I've always played life just kind of day by day and it's worked out for me so far but you know to to, to get on tour at the end of 98 was uh, pretty pretty damn surreal and I can't I, I'm seriously one of the luckiest guys on the planet I heard a, uh, a rumor or a
0: whisper you can confirm this that one of the reasons that you sort of got really interested and chased it at the end of 98 was because a friend of yours I think a friend of yours lived in El Paso JP Hayes. Won a tournament and he probably inspired you.
1: yeah? When I watched, I was working in the pro shop in '98 when I watched JP win the Westchester, Buick Classic up in Westchester. And I knew the very next year he was going to play in the match. I thought this is the greatest thing in the world. I mean, watching him win, and I get to watch this guy hit balls on the range every single day. And it was, and I've been doing that for a couple years, but to watch him go out and win, it was, I was probably just as happy as he was. Now that I know, I, I, I wasn't nearly as happy as he was for his wife, Laura, but um, just watching that was just mind-blowing. It's like, holy cow, this guy just beat everybody at a great tournament, great golf course, all of that. And then I remember him coming back a couple of weeks later, and no offense, JP, if you're happy to listen, but I smoked him.
0: <laughs> well, that's what I was going to say. Did. It- <laughs> The fact that he won inspired you
1: because you thought, you know, I'm as good as this guy. I, I was as I was as good as him, if not better, at our home course at El Paso Country Club. And I don't know if that's just, you know, I have horses for courses, guys that can play at their home course, but their game doesn't travel much. I was fortunate. My game traveled. I wasn't afraid to, to take my game on the road and go play, and that's why I had so much success when I was um, – you know, 1998, when I was working as an assistant pro, and so when I got back to my home course, it was almost even easier. Uh, you know, we had we had a lot of good players floating through in '98 that wanted to go play El Paso Country Club on a Friday because the money games were, were pretty interesting. They weren't they weren't absurd as people think, but you had to flat out play.
0: Did some of that fund your your school? entries
1: uh it it didn't fund my q school but it funded my entertainment on the weekends that's for damn sure Uh, (laughs) um i needed more money i didn't save a whole lot of money bradley (laughs) once it got in my pocket it didn't stay there very long (laughs) um and so what happened was is that the head pro at the time is now my instructor cameron doan he said listen we have all these guys coming back in wanting to play uh guys passing through town what we're gonna do is we're gonna say, you're gonna, if a pro comes into town, you're gonna to play to whatever the the lowest handicap of the professionals are and that or that work at the club. Well, in ninety-eight, mine was a plus seven. And these guys would come in off the road thinking, Oh yeah, I'm gonna be a plus three, plus four, I'm just gonna absolutely wax these guys. And they'd walk in and say, Yeah, beamers a plus seven, you're playing to a plus seven. They were looking like, what? And he goes, listen, this kid's working 50 to 60 hours a week, and you're out there, you know, doing nothing. You're either playing to a plus seven, and you don't have to show up. And they would show up, and they got, they'd got, they get clobbered. And it was that was probably more of an inspiration than J.P. winning, just because you get these guys – because J.P. was there all the time, and as you well know, when you come back to your home course, you're not giving it your all. You want to go play, and you're going to – you know, you want to do your best, but – it's never your best because you're you're doing your best on the road. Your best at home is just you just want to relax, enjoy it more than anything it's else. Like the horse, You're peaking. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So, but these other guys, they came in and they wanted to sniff around and try and make a pick up a few extra bucks, you know, easy dollars. They never did. That was to me. That was a lot more fun than than playing against JP because these other guys, they. JP knew that he was good. And he was already on a tour. These guys thought that they were good, and they thought that, oh, yeah, we're going to, you know, pick up a few extra dollars. And when I would go and, and clean their clock, to me, that was a lot more satisfying than, than anything else. I've not
0: been to New Mexico or El Paso or any of that area. Um, what's the golf courses like? I'm, I'm assuming kind of like the Austin or San Antonio, like Lower Trees. A little bit of sand, and you know, I'd, I'd love to go there one day.
1: Yeah, actually, El Paso is more like um, colonial, Fisher Colonial. Um, maybe not as many trees, but it's flat where we're at. But the greens were were wavy. They had they had probably at least three sections to them. Maybe some of them had four of them, and you just had to hit it to the right section. You had to control your spin. You had to control the height. You had to control everything uh, with your irons. driver. Um, you didn't need to bomb it out there, but it kind of helped. But this was more of a, a of a wedge course, and, and and certainly chipping and putting. But what it taught me was to to hit it to precise areas.
0: And that's the reason I was asked this question because I think I don't understand where you grew up because I have not been there. But people are. Uh, brought up by their environment like I grew up in Melbourne. So I'm a bouncer of the ball. I like to see it bounce and kick up rather than spin back and things
1: like that. So I'm assuming that that helped your game just based on what you described. There's no doubt. And it was interesting though because when I first got on tour though, in El Paso, you can't hit it vertically. you got to hit it flat and the greens were always fairly soft because it was, it was um, it was always so dry, and they, they had to keep the greens somewhat uh, um, i don't want to say wet—but they had to, they had to put a lot of uh, moisture in them. But you know, you had to keep the ball down. You had to work in both directions. You never went high with it. Once I got a tour, I was I was lost for a little while because I couldn't hit it vertical. I had to hit it flat, and so it uh, it took a little while to uh, to get there. But I think the one thing that El Paso Country Club did for me was just take my where I wanted to hit it and move that space just a lot closer. So when I got to golf courses where it had a little bit of undulation in the greens, I I fell in love. So
0: obviously you had a great career. Won a couple, three tournaments on the PGA Tour. Uh, We won't get to the major. Not many people, I haven't spoken to many people on the podcast who have won majors. Maybe a couple, but pretty cool. Uh, I mean, that's obviously the ultimate goal. But I want to start off with, and if... The listeners have not watched this. You need to go to YouTube and watch the International in 2002 and what happened. I'll let you fill us in, but it's some of the most insane golf to finish that I've ever seen.
1: I've I, I got to say, yes, please, If whoever's listening, all 13 of you folks at the moment, uh, go watch it because it, it truly is one of the most remarkable finishes um, you'll ever see anywhere. I had, I had, and to fill people in, this this was a stable, stable for events. So yeah, points. yeah. I, you know, I don't even know what the point situation was, um, but it, I think when with with about five holes to go, I think I had a thirteen point lead, and then when I which st- to make that up is if someone had five birdies.
0: They still couldn't catch you. That's exactly
1: right. That's exactly right. So it was kind of two a, points per birdie. Two points per birdie, and it was almost a lock. It was almost like you couldn't, you couldn't lose it. And and all of a sudden, we had a rain delay. We come back from it, and I make par on the par five fourteen and I make par on 15, I make par on 16, so I don't lose any points. And I make eagle on 17, which is worth five points, and I'm losing ground. Because, because um, Steve Lowry makes birdie on 14, pulls out for eagle on 15, uh, and bogey 16, and then I'm standing on 18 t after I make eagle with a nine point lead, and as you well know, because you played in this tournament, you want to be standing on the 18th tee with a nine point lead because you can almost just pick up your ball and walk in. In fact, they put out signs that you must make every effort to finish the hole because guys, you only can lose three points. Right,
0: the worst he could do is a double or worse. The worst
1: you could do is double or worse, which is minus three. And
0: leave you six in front.
1: And leave you six in front. And I was thinking, and not that I wasn't like hugely nervous, but I'm thinking, pretty much if I make par, I, this is a game, set, match. Because if he goes eagle birdie, that's only seven points. I got nine points. Not a big deal. After I hit my tee shot... I get to the middle of the fairway and all of a sudden I only have a 1 point lead cuz he holes it out for double eagle <laughs> for 8 points and all of a sudden I'm like what in the hell is going on and it's it truly is one of the most amazing finishes and I know that you know Nicholas and Watson uh, the Turnberry for 18 holes that was probably for 36 holes is what it was. Their finish was unbelievable. Head there to head. No one else in that tournament. There tour. was They've nobody else separated. in that tournament. Nobody else. But if you want to talk about the fastest finishes in PGA Tour history where it could have gone one way or the other, watch the 2002 International. Steve Lowry did everything. And I, I'm saying that behind the 18th green, and he's got a 12-footer to win or lose. If he makes it, he wins. If he misses it, I win. Because there, there's two points or zero points. And thankfully, he missed it. But, I I mean, it was – you're sitting there like, you're helpless. I I did everything I could. I shot 63, 19 points the final round, and this guy's got a putt to win or lose, and I've got no – got nothing else I can do.
0: Now, based on that, was his score worse than yours, but he had more points because of the Eagles and the Albatross? You know
1: what? I – Funny enough, I have no earthly idea what he shot. Um, I would assume that I, I'd assume that my sk- my score was better. In fact, but if you had to look at it, it was probably. I mean, he probably only shot sixty-seven, maybe. Right. Just did it in the special? But I have way, no did. idea. Yeah, he did it in a in a little bit different way. So the
0: international um, fill us in on the timeline. Timeline was that before the PGA or after? It, they was really close. Weeks,
1: it was two weeks before the PGA. So it went, it went international, and then um, Flint, the, the Buick and Flint, and then PGA. Yeah. And did you play Flint? No. no, no, no. I, went home and, I went home and celebrated <laughs> and bought a pool.
0: <laughs> and then you get to Hazeltine in Minnesota. Yep. Hot off a win. Nice, refreshing, relaxing partying week. And now hitting the major, um, you, I guess you started out par first day, something like that, and then sort of got hot. Yeah, day. I, I
1: shot even par the first day, and it was, uh, I mean, I think the first day though, I made, I made a bunch of birdies, but I made a bunch of bogeys. I, I think I made like six birdies, six pars, and six bogeys. I mean, I was all over the map the first day. Um, and then the second day, I I played really well. Um, shot, I think shot sixty six, and and you know I, I just liked the golf course. It was just the first, I, it was my fourth major that I ever played, and I I just found the golf course to my liking. It was just it seemed, it seemed easy off the tee for me, and I think that if you get to <clears throat> any major. You know, most tournaments, but majors especially, if you can find the driving lines that make it easy, that that it just suits your eye. And was that because of the shot shape or the width or the the
0: clubs you had to hit off the
1: tee? I think it was a little bit of the width and, and the shot shape because I found that I hit more drivers than anybody else. A uh, perfect example would have been um, on Sunday, playing with Justin Leonard, and on the second hole, he hit two iron and hit it out to the right. And I think he had, like, six iron in. I hit driver over the corner. I had nine iron. I'm like, why are you hitting two iron? I mean, see you can hit it past all of this. But I just, A, I was driving it really well. Um, I also was obviously very confident in my game. But I just felt like that's the way you need to attack the golf. The driving lines to me, there's only two holes there that didn't really—I didn't feel comfortable with. That must be my wife. Sorry, honey, I'll call you back later. But I just found the golf course to be, you know, from a driving standpoint, it—it it seemed easy to me. And funny enough, going back there now, I'm like, what was I thinking? This golf course—the T is one of the hardest. Have you seen. been
0: back there since? Oh yeah, yeah.
1: all the time. Yeah, yeah, I try and go back. I try and go back. You know, once a year, I I haven't been very good at it, but in the last few years. But I just love it up there. Got some of my one of my closest friends in the world. Um, who's a member there, and we we've just become friends because of the um, because of my win there. He was the uh, uh, one of the chairman uh, of the event. So yeah, it's it's awfully special, obviously.
0: And you beat a guy that everyone probably heard of before Tiger Woods. Not many people beat him in uh, major championships. He, he came second.
1: That was the first time, apparently, that he ever finished runner-up in a major. Um, you know, I as I get older, I think more people talk about it, and, and it probably feels, a l- I don't know if it feels any more special or anything like that, but I kind of recognize it, I guess, a little bit more. But at the time, to be fair, Bradley, I just, I was out playing I mean, I was out there to beat everybody. I wasn't there to beat Tiger Woods. He just happened to be the number one player in the world by a long shot and, and breathing down my neck. I but believe he birdied the last four, didn't he? Yes, he did. To but put some heat on you. but Yeah, but listen, everybody in the world knows that if anything goes to the 19th hole, I'm going to uh, I'll outlast anybody <laughs> in the 19th hole. No, he, he birdied the last four holes to make it seriously interesting. And, um, you know, funny enough, David Faraday, um, I, I won three times in tour, and he was with me at all three wins following my group. And he, he's over on the right-hand side of the fairway on the 18th hole, and Tiger birdies it. And going up 18, when I teed off, I had a three-stroke lead. And then when he made birdie, I only had a two-stroke lead. He comes running across the fairway and going, two, two, two. two-stroke lead. And I'm going... Get the hell out of here. I'm nervous as hell. Leave. I, I got this. And, uh, I, you know, I geeked it up there near the uh, front edge, 3 putted it, and, and ended up winning by one. But, I mean, i, I got to say that was probably the most nervous three-putt I've ever had in my life by a long shot. But, you know, at the same time, though, I, w- I knew Tiger was there, but I wasn't focused on what he was doing because it's so hard to win anything thinking of somebody else, why would you want to think of them when you got all the things going on in your world? You know, you, you're you're trying to suppress, you know, your nerves and things like that. You're trying to, you know, breathe through your eyelids and then out through your ears, you know, all of that. Listen, it's just hard. It's hard to win anywhere, and, and yet no matter who's there, who you're playing against or who's in second place, you can't control what they're doing. You cannot control it. So why think about it?
0: That most people do. If Mo- listen, down their there, and, and listen, there's a lot.
1: And here's the interesting thing about, about and I'm definitely I'm definitely naive about this. Or or maybe I oversimplify it. But I always found it interesting. I found it very interesting when Sergio would always say, I don't think I have what it takes to win a major. And I kept saying to myself, well, what are you talking about? You play against the same guys each and every week, for the most part. Especially at WGCs, um, Players Championship, Memorial, Bay Hill. I mean, you name it; those were the big events back when we were playing. And I would, I was always confused why guys were saying, "Well, it takes something special." I'm like, no, it doesn't. You just have to just not. Think about what it would mean. You can't think about what it does for your for your future or or all of that.
0: Because that's really what it is. It's a bigger that's more remembered event.
1: That's to be fair, I think that's all it is. And and I'm not trying to discount what I did, and I'm not trying to, to simplify it because I know it's a big deal. And I I as I am so blessed and honored to be a part of, of I guess, that club. But I just found that I, I I never thought about anything that was life-changing about it, and I never thought about because I just don't think I grew up in that mindset either. But I was always like, listen, you aren't good enough to win, Sergio. This is not – this is not – it's not a, you, you can do this.
0: And then what about the victory jig? It's a bit pretty, pretty famous little thing that they show. I listen, I, I yeah. have no
1: idea where that came <laughs> from. I, I it is so funny because I have no idea where it came from, how it how it came about, but I did it. Um I don't want to take it back, but I wish I could have at least been on Dancing with the Stars beforehand. I so thought it was could, a pretty good move, Bemon are you kidding me? I mean, you, I mean, what do you do? I mean, I saw Tiger Woods the first two events that year, and he just goes, yes, you know, lifts up his arms like this. I'm like, if I ever happen to win a big tournament like that, I am not doing that. I can promise you that. And so I just sat there and was like, you know what, this would be fun. And I did listen to that song, uh, Soak of the Sun. Sheryl Crow, I have no idea why it came on every day. Every day to the golf course, it came on on the radio. This is before Sirius XM. This is before... You know, a lot of stuff um, did that and then uh, oh you love this too uh, when I every as you know we get courtesy cars for for all the tournaments I showed up on Saturday afternoon with my wife because I had to play in a corporate event on Sunday so we get up there a little bit early and so we checked in early and not all the cars were delivered to the player lot yet so out of the, I guess it was 156 Cadillacs at the time, we got the red one. We were the only, like, red four-door DeVille Cadillac. To this day, why the hell I didn't buy that car <laughs> is beyond me. I just think that would have been the best car to own for the rest of my life was this red Cadillac out of the 156 given to the players, I got the red one. <laughs> Red's a winner. Apparently so. Now,
0: I've got to ask you a question, too, because I spent uh, last week with one of your friends. He came for an all-day lesson. He said that he knew you grew up together. He said you had one swing thought or one trick that week at the PGA. I don't know if you remember it. He said, I asked him if, I, if he had any rich beam stories. And he said, just ask him about his swing tip, where he engaged his core.
1: Do you remember that? I do, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was Friar, John Lanham, um, head pro now at Prairie Dunes. Gee, I love Friar. He's a great guy. I haven't seen him in years and years. But, you know, I, and it's not even that. I think that when you get nervous, it it consumes your entire body, right? I mean, you, you have butterflies that start in your stomach, but it kind of consumes your body. And so it, it's not even that fact that I was doing Pilates at the time. My wife convinced me to do Pilates, and I don't even know why I said it. because I don't think it had anything to do with Pilates. But I just decided that, listen, I can't let this, all the nerves consume my entire body. Because when you do that, your legs go numb, your arms go numb, and then you're really toast. So I just kind of thought, you know what, I'm going to try and take all of these nerves and just chug them right into my core. Put them and somewhere. Just, just try and put them somewhere. That I just I need to compartmentalize them because if they go everywhere I'm done. And I was able to do that on Sunday because I tell you what on the Sunday when I teed off with Justin the final group, how I hit that fairway I'll never know because my limbs felt like an octopus out of water. They were I mean every single limb felt like it was going in a different direction. And so I think after the second hole I thought you know what I got to do something about this and. And that's how I kind of got through it all.
0: Great. I, um, I do a similar thing. As you know, you have my down underboard, and I get to do a similar thing with that. I try and get people to put pressure somewhere else so they don't get tight everywhere. So it's kind of like the same thing. I found that really interesting when
1: John mentioned that. Yeah, you got you, you. have to move, you have to take the pressure away from, you know, because we all feel it in our body. I mean, when you tee off, whether it's in the club championship or, or the Ryder Cup or the Presidents Cup. I mean, you got nerves everywhere moving, and you, you almost have to just rationalize them, and you, you need to do something with them. It, the more you keep them in your head, the more they spread to the rest of your body because it's really hard to get rid of them, isn't it? You, oh, you nerves are there. You,
0: you've got to learn how to use
1: them rather than try to get rid of them. And and listen, that's that's the one thing that drove um, Byron Nelson out of the game. And no, you know a lot of people don't know this, but Byron Nelson hated the nerves. He hated the pressure. And and yet he was the most prolific winner, you know, one of the most prolific winners on the PGA Tour. He hated the nerves. He hated dealing with them. And I can understand that. I mean, it's not easy. It's not easy going out there and being that nervous for that long every single day. Because after a while it just eats at you. And you just finally say, you know what, I'm done. I don't want any more of it. Can't do it. I think that Tiger is able to to rationalize it, put him in an area. I think Phil kind of does the same thing. I think if you look at you know Phil winning what forty two times in the Tiger era, that's that's insane. Any other era, Phil would have won ninety times probably. But um, you know these guys are nervous all the time and don't make any bones about it and I know that, and you have to do something with that nervous energy. you got to put it somewhere. You have to you have to store it somewhere else besides your brain, because if you put it in your brain, your brain controls every nerve in your body, and you're done. That's
0: an interesting point, too, because I did not know that about Byron Nelson, but Bobby Jones used to say he would lose, like, 10, 15 pounds a week, you know, during the, the amateur or one of those big tournaments basically being consumed by nervousness and fear of not playing so
1: well, I guess. I think that's, I, I think the greats in the game, they they harbor that burden probably more than, than anything. I mean, I know Tiger said that many times, and you just, it is so difficult to, to hold that in because... I never had to do it for seventy two holes. I only had to do it for thirty six in my wins. It was never over seventy two holes. In fact, I think, you know, Kemper Open it was thirty six holes. Even though I was leading kind of led up the first day co lead with you after thirty six holes. But it really doesn't start until until Saturday. But for Tiger and and the guys back it's every day because the cameras are on them. Because cameras weren't on you and I. Cameras, I mean, you know, Thursday, Friday, on most weeks, 24-7 on those guys. And so you're always in the spotlight, always having to perform. And it doesn't matter if it's a Thursday morning or a Friday evening. The cameras are always on those guys. And so I only had that. I only had to deal with it for Seventy-two holes total, so it's what ninety holes total basically, and that's different than all the holes that those guys have to do. Thought you did it well. I did it well, and and you know, funny enough, Noda and I were talking about uh, you know we're, we're talking about this. I uh, think at the concession a couple weeks ago, you know, he won four times, but I think he was in contention maybe six, and he won four out of six. There's guys these days that just, when they get in contention a lot, they just don't pull it off. Um, Not to pick on Tony Finau, but Tony Finau is there a lot and just hasn't quite got across the finish line with the next victory. Um, Xander, he's got four victories on tour, but he puts himself in contention each and every week. And it's so hard to win, right? But... There are guys too though that are seemingly prolific winners when they get in the hunt. I think Patrick Reed would be one of those Jim guys. Yeah. Two out of like two games. No, we'll exactly, exactly. And and listen, you, you don't it and you don't need to be a great player to be, but once you get in that in in the opportunity to win, listen. It's it's a different story. Some guys are just they don't get into contention a lot. But when they do, they win. I think one of my downfalls was I looked at Jim Furyk like, geez, I want to be in the contention every week like him because if I get in contention every week like him, I'm going to win a lot. But that wasn't my style. I thought that oh, I could do this. I can do this. But, you know, realistically, I couldn't. But there's some guys that just know how to close once they get into contention. And it doesn't have to be the guys on the top of the world. It has, you know, like you said, Jim Herman, perfect.
0: We all want to become better. Now you have the opportunity to learn all about the training drills I use with my amateur players, beginners, and my PGA Tour players that I work with. My second ebook, The 430 Path to Great Golf, is now available. Take an in-depth look at the technique and drills that have helped hundreds of golfers the world over. Train your swing to be more powerful, more consistent, and more like you envision your swing to be the 4:30 path to great golf, only available in the store at bradleyhughesgolfforum.com and bradleyhughesgolf-members.com. Bradley Hughes Golf, it's where experience counts. Now let's get back to the interview. So that's a good, uh, a good fallback, actually. What what you just said about Shoffley and Tony Finau, obviously with them, it's not really a technique thing, is it? Because they're great players and they can do it all the time. There's obviously something else that they have to jump the
1: hurdle with to be able to start winning more. It's I think for some guys and and this was probably me not really ever rationalizing it, but it's almost a sense of not urgency, but I'm not going to get this opportunity. So maybe it is urgency. Like, this opportunity doesn't come but once in a lifetime. If I don't win it now, I'm not going to put myself in this position ever again. And it, it turns out to be true, right? I mean, I've never – I mean, my my record in the majors is absolutely abysmal. I played in eight U.S. Opens. I made the cut in seven – i I'm sorry, I missed the cut in seven of them. The one cut I made, I finished DFL. Dead, you figure out the F, and then last, Right. So it's not like my my record in majors has been anywhere near. Best finish in the Masters, I think it was either 16th or 14th. I forget which number it is. That's it. I don't think I have any other top 15s in the major except for Masters one year and my win. Other than that, no top 10s. Never been in contention. Never that. But listen, I was in contention once, and I won it once. Batting (laughs) 1,000. It's just, I, I still think that, that major championships are, with the exception of the once-in-a-generation kind of guy like me, it's reserved for the guys that are always there. They keep knocking on the door. They keep putting themselves in that position. And that it opens. And I tell you what, Xanders, Tonys, um, you know, the guys that unfortunately didn't have it for them. Uh, and, and I'm not going to say that's not going to happen for Lee Westwood because he's playing really good right now. The Colin Montgomerys. I think Colin was one of those guys that truly believed that he had to be special to win a major. Which, as in his his terminology, bollocks. if you're American, it doesn't matter what that is, but if you're English, then you'll understand what I'm saying. But I mean, it's just it's not. You don't have to be special. You just have to understand that Paul Montgomery was, was so good, and yet there must have been something in there, though, that he didn't believe that he could get there to win. And I, to this day, to this day, Bradley, I have no idea why that is.
0: Yeah, he was a great player. I, oh. In fact, people ask me, you know, who, what was the best round of golf you ever saw? and it was Colin Montgomery. I play with him. You've probably been there, to Grand Circe Air up in mm. Switzerland there. I play with him on the Saturday, and I shot 69 or 68, and I felt like I was a 10 handicapper. He shot 61 part the last four holes and basically didn't hold a putt over 7 foot. He just walked up and tapped and said, I'll tap it in. So he, obviously he had the game, and to feature in so many tournaments, he had the game. I'm wondering if in 92 when Jack Nicholas him at Pebble Beach that he was going to win and, and he uh, didn't get over the line Tom kite got there whether he thought maybe I'm never going to do this
1: you know you, you you kind of have to look at something like that and think that yeah that might have been something you know to 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 tell somebody that you want it and then he kind of just probably rests instead of still having that nervous anticipation but there's no reason why he shouldn't have won a major, and um, you know, there, there, he had, a, obviously, a bunch of great opportunities to do it, um, taking nothing away from his career. I mean, Jesus. I mean, he, was it eight, eight order merits in a row? Seven, I believe. Yeah. Seven, seven. Why not make it eight? You know what? Listen, I give him I give him 20. I mean, he was that good. He really was that good, and um, and that was when Sebi. Was great. Longer was great. Woozin was great. Lyle was great. I mean, he beat them all in Europe. He really did. He beat them all. And he just didn't. He never won a major. And I don't know. I don't know. Out of curiosity,
0: did he ever win in America besides on
1: the PGA tour? I have an answer for that. I have an answer for that. I don't know the answer. I'm asking. No, either. I'm. I, you know what? Funny as Sky that. Sports, as as a Sky Sports pundit, I should know that. Um, I think in Houston, but I don't. I don't know if he won Houston. We'll Google that later. Come we'll Google that later. Yeah. Dang it! I don't know. I, I. I don't. He had to have. Come on. Where is it?
0: So getting back to the okay, while I Google good. this, let's get us back to the the red Cadillac. And
1: I missed that red
0: Cadillac. Talking about cars. Yes. I believe, or I don't believe, I know for fact that you won a car at Riviera on the fourteenth hole for a hole in one. Was it red? Yes it was. <laughs> and what did you do when you holed out? Because it actually I think it brought you not ra- not riches, but I think it even created a TV commercial for you.
1: Didn't it? You know, that's actually, that's very astute. You've been doing your homework because, yes, it did give me a commercial. And um, obviously, if you, if you YouTube it or Google I YouTube it, you'll see me making a hole-in-one, playing with Jim Furyk and Ernie Els, and as soon as I hit the ball, Ernie goes, and I'm not. I, I am going to try a South African accent, just because it's 7:10 um, at night, and it's a Monday. It's my day off, and I need a day off. I Richie, that's all over it, Sonny. <laughs> I mean, it just. I love his accent. Whoever calls you Richie. I love that, and uh, and it went in, and I went up there and jumped on this brand new red Altima put uh, six names in a hat pulled out my caddy uh, my 18 month old daughter at the time pulled out the name of my caddy we gave it to him and two days later and that was on the Wednesday after I made the whole one on the Friday after I made the whole one my agent calls me up and says hey uh, Nissan wants to make a commercial out of this and I said really he said, yeah so tell me the parameters well, they want to pay you, whatever it is. And uh, I said, "Okay, well, what do I have to do for you?" He goes, "Nothing. Just sign the dotted line." I go, "Why haven't you forged my name yet?" <laughs> I mean,
0: really? They already had the best footage. Did you
1: have Did you have spikes on when you jumped in it? No, soft spikes. <laughs> soft spikes. But uh, I, I was like, "Why haven't you signed the contract already?" I mean, <laughs> I mean, the money they were paying me was. It wasn't absurd, but it was a hell of a lot of money for doing nothing. Like I literally had to do nothing, Bradley. All they had to do was <laughs> holding one foot. Well of course, but I mean they gave me a car and listen, I funny enough I probably should have said, Listen, make a commercial, keep your money, but I want two more cars. That would have been that would have been smart, but Good I deal. But I wasn't thinking that. I wasn't I was thinking more about the cash demo at <laughs>
0: time. All right, we're gonna someone can fact check this, but I've googled Colin Montgomery. European Tour, thirty one wins. Asian tour, two wins, PGA of Australasia, one win, which happened to be the Aussie Masters, one of my favourite tournaments. PGA Tour champion, seven wins, European tour senior. Nine, other events like Ned Bank Challenge and Things 7,
1: no mention of a PGA Tour victory. No sugar. Crazy. That is crazy. Hey, i got a question for you. Did, um, O2, Aussie...
0: I know exactly what you're going to talk
1: about. Aussie right? Masters... Australian Vic. Open at Victoria? Is it all? Yeah. You played it. And uh, I remember asking. We played. You this. We
0: played it. Together. We, I didn't play that year, but I remember seeing you afterwards, and I. So we sort of joked about it because I said, "Had you like the sand belt there, Beamer?" And you and said, "That's the only time I've ever seen a round
1: council due to good weather." It was. It, it was the. It was the most bizarre thing in my life, and I'll never forget this. Ever. It was. It was well, Lonard and I. Pete Lonard and I played on Wednesday, and they were they were double cutting and rolling the greens, which are already crazy fast. And I'm thinking to myself, this is this is absurd. And I think we had I think because everybody went off the first tee, which was a par three. Short par four. Really short. No, I think... Oh,
0: did they make it a three that year? I think they made it a okay. three. I right. think it was
1: a par three. I can see that. And uh, as 95% of the field, I think I made bogey, made four. And then the second hole, I 2 putted from the back of the ring where the pin was up front. That's when I actually had touch. And Brett Ogle comes over, it was on third tee, and they'd suspend a play. And it was, it was 78 degrees. Was it maybe like 13 Celsius? Low 20s. Low 20s, yeah. And it was blowing like nothing. Like very, very low. I'm like, what are they doing, Brett? And he goes, um, ball's not staying on the green on number
0: three. I believe it was the green ahead of you, the third.
1: Yeah, the three. third, yeah. And <laughs> I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. The the group ahead of you, the guy just six putted it. Kept hitting it up, three feet below it, came back down. So they come out, and they literally put, like, three minutes of water on the court. I'm like, that's not going to do it. (laughs) They kept trying to place the ball. They kept trying to place the ball three feet away, and it just kept rolling. And they place it a few inches further away, and it kept rolling. A few inches away, the other way, and it kept rolling. I'm going, what is going on? And they canceled it. And it was perfect weather. (laughs) And, well, the... The Aussie uh, Open, they, yeah, they didn't really like what I had to say. Like, I've never seen a round council in the perfect weather. Truthfully. Yeah, they didn't, they didn't really like that uh, very much. And, you know, they're paying me a good amount of money, but I didn't really have the tact then, nor now. But, uh, I mean, it was just, I mean, what a beautiful golf course, but they just they took it to the extreme. I couldn't figure that out. Why?
0: That's normal. They like Melbourne Sand belt. You get a Is little it? bit of that wind, and then they like to cut the greens to not not make it unplayable, but obviously. They but that was just they, they went overboard and maybe missed the whole location by a couple of feet or something.
1: Oh, I tell you what, day. though that that was just a beautiful golf course. I mean, that, that thing was just amazing. I just I'd go back there in a millisecond. And play. I grew up like five miles from there. Ah, you're a bunch. so I got, you're so lucky. I remember
0: uh, playing with Ben Crenshaw once, and we were talking said exactly what you just did he said you are so lucky that you grew up in melbourne and at the time i didn't realize it when you start traveling and you go to other places and you see other venues and think damn i was lucky like to grow up on all those courses all within you know a, a blanket throw on one another
1: amazing and the, and the fact that and, and I'm, i know that you're supposed to be interviewing me but i don't give a shit right now <laughs> but the fact that you know How the green complexes, they're greens and they just run right into the bunkers. I just find that design. With no edge. With no edge. I find that design just, it is so sexy. It is just beautiful. It just, it brings so much to the game. I just, man, I don't know how, I don't know why, why we don't do more of that in the U.S., especially when we're here in Florida, why don't we have more of that? Well, in Florida, they put the bunkers like 10 yards away from the green, most of the time. I right? know. And I just, it's it's sad. I, I think the I think the design game is sad. But that's, that's another podcast that we can do together. All right.
0: So let's talk. Obviously, we've done a, a fair bit of yakking so far. But you ended up having to not play due to a back surgery. Yeah. How was, obviously, there's pain involved. I'm sure you know what a lot of players have gone through. I've, yeah. Been fortunate; I've never really been injured, but um, you know, walk us through that: how painful it was, how hard you tried to make it work, and then the, I guess, disappointment that it didn't,
1: that you had to sort of give it up. Yeah, it was, um, you know, interesting enough. It was; it, I didn't realize it at the time. it It should have been a it should have been a blessing. I should have looked at it as an opportunity to step away from the game. Um, and take my time. And yet, I I chose not to. Um, I chose to try and push myself a little bit, and try and, and get my body rehabbed, and to try and, and hit more balls than I should have, and try and do too much with my body, uh, you know, especially with the neck, and it just wasn't happening. And, I came back six months after my surgery in 2010. Uh, My surgery was in the beginning of the third week in April and the second week in April. I went to Monday after the Masters, played in that, came back on Tuesday, fell asleep on the airplane, something felt weird, went through the weekend, got an MRI on Monday, surgery on Thursday. That's how quick it all happened. So I should have taken at least a year away. It took six months away, and I was never the same. And I don't know if I'll ever be the same. Um, So you still feel it? It's it's not that I, I feel it. It's just that the fact that you lose so much confidence in what you were doing and how you did it. And I almost think that you, as we all know, every day that you spend away from the golf course, somebody else is getting Right, and I also think that's a psychological thing. I think there's a lot of times that people need to take a year off, and then come back psych- psychologically, psychologically, and, and do okay. And you're laughing at that. I can see the smirk on your face, going, "Goddamn right, Beamer. We should have taken a year off," you know. And I agree with that. I think that psychologically, um, what we do, what we did for a living, Bradley, is that it is so demanding, not only physically but psychologically i think that every single tour player should have a one year get out of jail free card do not you can't play for one year anywhere but you get one year to do that and it's not going to take away from from where what your status is on tour because it is such a it it, it it's a mind f I don't want to say because I don't know what kind of podcast this is, but it it just, it's so hard mentally. And people can think, oh, you stay at the hotels all the time, you're the best golf courses. No. We're at the hardest golf courses. They stress these things out all the time. It's the most stressful part of our job each and every day to figure out how to play the hardest the, hardest golf course in the world at that moment in time. In, for those four days.
0: It's interesting you say that because I did a podcast, my last podcast, was, with Steve Williams, and Steve said about Augusta, he goes, you can't wait to get there, and you can't wait to leave it because of the stress. Every shot's a stress.
1: Every shot. Every shot is, a, is. I don't, I've never liked Augusta. It, it, I, I say it back. I've never liked playing at Augusta. Even now, I don't want to play there. Even though I can, and I do, because I want to go punish myself because it's still Augusta, but it's just like I just every shot, even even when there's not a camera on me and there's no scoreboards up and I'm playing with one of my friends. Because remember, there, I'm still stressed. I'm still stressed because I know that I'm going to four putt one of those eighteen holes. I don't know which one it is, but I'm a four putt one of them,
0: and I visit Rice Creek once.
1: And I'm probably going to visit Rays Creek once. I'm probably going to do something really absurd. And the worst thing is there's no beverage cart to help Ease absorb the pain. think the <laughs> 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 <fit was> same. <laughs> All right, so talking
0: about beverage carts, uh, this is a funny story. It probably won't sound funny to you, but I went on a food tour with my wife up in Asheville, North Carolina. Yes. And we met in a... We had to meet the other people in the group and the host of the group in a bookstore. That was where the tour started from. And we were just walking around, we had half an hour to kill. And we went up to the golf section and there was a book there and it said Bud, Sweat and Tears by Alan Shipnack. And I said to my wife, You watch this. So I went I couldn't remember what page it was on, but I went to the the back of the thing where they mentioned who's in the book and my name, I went to page 83, and I'm actually in that book because we played together. in the, Absolutely. And she yeah. thought it was funny as heck. So tell us how that book came about because obviously Steve DePlanis, who's a friend of your, Caddy for you, is a friend of mine, Caddy for Jim Furick for years, Tommy yeah, sure. Armour, like he, gave, I think, maybe, maybe Hirsch did, I don't remember. But he always brought a winner home, like he had a knack of bringing people in to win. Unfortunately, he's not with us anymore. I mean, maybe. Live that life a little bit too hard there, but was that a true story? Everything? And did Alan follow
1: you around, or you just fed him info? You know, it, it, so I'm going to preface this by saying that anybody who's listening, do not buy that book. Because you're just going to put money in Alan's pocket, not mine. You and I got paid the same amount for that book, <laughs> right? Um, which is, I, I'm not going to say it's too bad. I, I've I've mostly gotten past the fact that, you know, the book's out there. I'm okay with it. You know, I, to be fair, I don't even know what's in there. Um, I, I read the galleys, which is, you know, what he wrote at one point in time. Um, I, I really never read the book, to be fair. Um, Why not? I, I just, I really don't know what's in there. I know that. I probably held back a little bit on a few things um, just because I I kind of thought that, you know, shit, my mom might read this. <laughs> Nobody wants their mom to read a book about about their sons, I can promise you. Um, but, you know, I, I, to be really fair, in 1999, Alan called me up, and I was at Callaway Garden. I didn't know who Alan was at the time. And he says to me he wants to write a book. Now, what guy that's a rookie on tour who's only won the Kemper over, who the year prior was working in a country club in El Paso, Texas, somebody wants to write a book about you? I was all in. I'm not, I'm not lying. I'm like, this is going to. Awesome! This is gonna be fun, right? I have thankfully learned a little bit about life between then and now. Um, thankfully, social media didn't, ex- you know, wasn't around back then. Um, but I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I, it was when I got that email. Absolutely, I wanted a book written about it. Now, you know. I mean, it's not—it's not that I didn't want to read about it, but I didn't have. Obviously, I didn't get paid about it, which I don't—I'm not pissed off about anymore. To be fair, I'm really not. I because if I was getting paid for it, that means I'd have to endorse it, and be like, "Yeah, that was. Yeah, I want you to buy this book. Don't care if you can buy the book. If you buy the book, great. Put money in his pocket. I—I I really don't care. But my life has changed quite a bit since then. But <clears throat> Once we turn this microphone off, I'll tell you the, all the real stories about it. So. Sounds good. Yeah. So this will be on the red button later on. It's going to cost you a $19.95. Pailed with Venmo uh, at Bradley and Beamer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, the, the, yeah. My recording is still going to be running. <laughs> we'll keep that secret.
1: All right. I've got a couple
0: more questions. Uh, obviously, now you're on the other side. Of, yeah. You're in the media. Yeah. Sky Sports, uh, which I don't get the feed for that, but I'm sure you're really good ah, at it. Sky Sports. I wish you would. I wish a, you would. It's more European or English channel. Yes. And what have you been, five or six years now? Uh,
1: yeah, six years now. Yeah, and I love it. I get love to it.
0: travel to all the foreign lands and everywhere. And you know, funny enough,
1: I do a lot of my stuff here in the U.S. I do uh, – I used to do stuff over uh, – not all around the world, but uh, UK, Ireland – um, you have to say UK, Ireland, and Scotland, because if you don't, then, and, and Wales. Wales yeah. And Wales, yeah, I get it, yeah. And Northern Ireland and Ireland, so that's another one we have to talk so about. You've learned geography. I've learned geography very, very much. <laughs> uh, you should go to the uh, Emirates, which was nice as well.
0: Um, I heard you went to the Hong Kong racetrack once,
1: did you? Oh, my gosh, yeah, with uh, Dom Boulay. Oh, my, you know Dom. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, well, yeah, Dom. Um, Our
0: friend, John Langham, said that you uh, called him from the racetrack. I did, oh, yeah. So we, that's we're, how I knew about And
1: that. you know what? We missed out. I missed out on one pony, one pony because my friend, um, my Australian friend, Sean Morley, didn't place the bet <laughs> on one pony. I don't know if you know who Sean Morley is, but that's okay. Um Sky Sports is is phenomenal. I just I can't get enough. Of, I I can't praise enough of who Sky Sports is. It we are a bunch of of former professionals playing the European Tour. Uh, we got Ewan Murray, uh, Rob Lee. We've got Andrew Coltard, Nick Doherty, uh, Wayne Riley, Radar, your man I Played the
0: World Cup with Radar.
1: It, there you go. We've uh, got that
0: could be another nineteen ninety nine. Podcast is
1: talking about. Listen, we, we could do some serious <laughs> fun with radar. I mean, the podcast with radar. I I, I just I want to let you You've got to, to, to join us. Oh, there's <laughs> no doubt. I will absolutely join you. There's no doubt on that. Um, but it's we do it a little bit differently, I think. Um, we what I learned very early on is that you have to let the shot speak for itself. We have to let the shot breathe. Where, when you listen to the American broadcast, everybody wants to talk about what's going on, how it's going to happen, this and that. And, and once, and even after the shot is hit, there's still some conversation. We're with Sky, we're trying to set up, we're, we're trying to set up the shot, but as soon as the shot is hit, until it lands, don't say anything. And I'm still... Every once in a while when I'm on the ground because I'm the only one right in the US right now working with Sky because everybody else is in London, I get a little bit caught up into it because since I'm the only one here, I talk too much. <laughs> I understand that my boss is to me, but we try and do it a little bit differently. We just want the pictures to speak for themselves. And I to be fair, I never want to work Butch Harmon worked for Sky for 17, no, 21 years, I think it was. I want to surpass that. I never want to leave Sky. I love what they do. I love how they do it. Um, The hours are a little bit longer. We have to work a little bit tougher, but I would never do it any other way. I, I think I fit the mold of the Sky Viewer. We have fun. We kind of tell it how it is, but we don't take ourselves too seriously, and we're in the entertainment business. But we're educators. We say, listen, this is hard shot. This is what's going to happen. This and that. Let's watch it. Let's watch it. That's it. And yeah. we don't and, – and once it happens,
0: yeah. what about um, – based on that, you know, there's been a bit of talk of late about trying to mic up players and things like that. What do you think of that? I mean, I, is that – too much wishful thinking. Like the player knows the mics, so there he's not going to be as forthcoming, or, or is this stuff we don't really need? You can hear it from boom mics, or you guys can set it up.
1: I think that <clears throat> I think that we all know who wants, who's okay with being mic'd up, and I think that uh, we all know who. Listen, it, it, there's no, there's no doubt that that. The mics hear everything, um, good, bad, and indifferent, right? <clears throat> and I'm gonna, I'm gonna put myself out here real quick. I think that <clears throat> I know what Justin Thomas said earlier this year was was distasteful, but I also know that the microphone should have been on, and it's not. It's not there. For the broadcaster's um, job to to turn off the mics because they're going to listen to everything. But I'd say what if you listen to everybody who's out there, you go to the tell you what you turn on the microphones for the first guys on the first team.
0: <laughs> Lucky they didn't have mics when we played
1: together. Well, that's exactly right. <laughs> I just find it, and and I'm probably going to get hammered for this, but I don't care. I just think that. If you're going to turn on the mics for the guys in the final groups, the best players in the world, turn them on for the first guys. Listen to what they say. I promise you.
0: Make it an even field.
1: Make it an even field. That's exactly right. And And I'm not defending what he said. I'm just saying make it an even field so if everybody knows that a microphone is on, let them choose to what they say. If every player knows the microphone is on, they get to choose what they say and how they say it. After that, I'm out. But I think that <clears throat> that those boom mics, they crank them up, and they want to hear what they want to hear. Yeah, I don't disagree
0: with that. All right, so we've got to talk on the last subject. The players' championship. This will probably air after the players' championship is over. But let's see Nostradamus Rich Beam. What's your what are we looking for this week? What's your selection of who's going to feature and how the course is going to roll out? Because obviously you've played here I've played here. It's a very testing
1: golf course. What who's what type of player benefits most? You know, it this golf course doesn't truly um, it doesn't truly really favor anyone, which is very strange. I mean, why is Tiger only won here twice, right? I mean, he's won everywhere a load of times. Why is it – why is he only won here, you know,
0: twice? Even Phil Mickelson a few years ago said he would maybe not even play it because he didn't like the course.
1: Of course, soon. of course. You know, you can sit here and look at it and say, okay – we want somebody that controls their golf ball off the tee and plods their way around. Two guys come to mind immediately. Xander and... Um, and I, I just have too many things going on right in front of me. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Xander and, and Cantley. That's what I was thinking about. Um, those guys... Should win here. Every other year, they really should. Um, Harris English should do very well here. Justin Thomas should do very well here. I'm going to go. I mean Morikawa, Reed. I mean, holy cow! Who am I going to pick here? Um, It's such a it's such a finicky golf. Who's putting well right
0: now? Yeah, it's a, it's definitely Who's a putting second right shot now.
1: golf course. It's a, sec- it, and a it's, part it's,
0: it's not overall length.
1: It's it's not length, it's it's a second shot, but it's like once we get near the green, I mean, who do you pick? I mean you know, I mean Kentley is just amazing. I gotta go I'm gonna look here, I'm gonna look.
0: You're on PGAtour.com to check out the show. I am. I really am. I truly am. Um, Mark was really good, isn't he? Like, yeah, but, I,
1: you know. why do the second time Here's here. Here's the reason. Why don't I like him? Why don't I like him? You know what? I, uh, I don't know what I like. I like two guys. I like two guys. I'm gonna give you my first like, and then my love. My first like is Sung Jm. This kid can play. Holy cow, can he play? He's just he's he's TPC. He's absolutely TPC. My love, though, I gotta go with Fleetwood. And I pick Fleetwood every single week because of my man crush. <laughs> he's my man crush. I mean, I love Tommy. Does but, he want his hair? No, nah, just you know what I, you know, honestly, because I just I I I truly love the kid. He's really one of my my dear friends. I truly do. But I think though that he's this is one of these courses that it it tells him what shot to hit. He doesn't have to think about what kind of shot do I need to hit. Fade first,
0: or a draw, not a first away. hole is a perfect
1: example. I mean, when we stand, on that first hole, it goes, the fairway goes this way, but it goes this way. I mean, so so, the fairway goes straight out, but the second shot goes left to right. And yet, so he can play a cut shot, if he wants to, with a three-wood, where he can take driver and draw it out there over everything on the right-hand side. It's it just, it almost tells him what to do in, in some respects, but he has a decision to make in other respects, but I think he wants it to be right in front of him. I think the first hole is the only hole that that he has to make a decision on until number maybe nine. Because everything else just this is what you have to do. That's what Pete Dye did. It, it, you have to do this. You want to do this, but you have to do this. And that's what tour players hate.
0: <laughs> well, they heard it. We'll, uh, we'll check back next week to see how true that is, but love Fleetwood, like Sung JM.
1: Bet, bet, bet Sung JM, and. No, bet both of them.
0: <laughs> Double up. All right, mate. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. i got to tell you that bourbon was excellent.
1: It was a very delicious choice. Sweden's Go. That was, yeah, that's a. Uh... Have a great call. Cheers. Great to catch up. Thanks, always.
0: Well, that's it for another episode of Bradley Hughes Golf Podcast. For more information about my golf instruction, check out my website, BradleyHughesGolf.com. If you like to watch golf videos to make you a better player, sign up for my members-only site, BradleyHughesGolf-Members.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.